so what a weekend. This is amazing. And uh, welcome to Easter. This is the day that we celebrate that Jesus is alive. This is the day that uh, when we as Christians make the... Is this working, Nathan? You can put up... I think it's working. This is the day that we make the audacious claim. There we go. That Jesus rose from the dead. And this is the day that basically this... Uh, for about this last month, I just kind of did like a short little uh, sermon series. Did Jesus really... We talked about did Jesus really live? And what are the historical uh, evidence and artifacts and that Jesus actually lived as a human being? Did Jesus really claim to be God? And then last week we looked at did Jesus really die on that Roman instrument of death and torture? But this entire sermon series means, actually the last three questions mean nothing. And in fact, Jesus of Nazareth would have been lost. He would have been a relic of history. He would have been completely forgotten as a human being had not this last question come into play. Did he rise from the dead? I remember I started out this series, you know, kind of asking you, how many of you know anything about your great-great-grandparents? You guys are all looking. You're all looking like in, up in the air going, ah. Uh. How many of you guys know the names, the first name of your great-great-grandparents? One. <laughs> there we go, right? It is very rare for us to even remember the people to whom we're related. And, and, and a sobering thought, if you think about that, is actually very few of us, unless we contribute in some major way to human flourishing or society, the fact is that many of us will be forgotten possibly only one generation after our death. It's a sobering thought on an Easter Sunday. But this Jesus, we could answer in affirmative. You can go to the historical sources like Tacitus and Josephus, not to mention, obviously, the biblical record of his life and his teachings. But you can go to the greatest Jewish historian, Josephus, and you can go to the greatest Roman historian, Tacitus, and you can build a case for how, why it's reasonable to believe that Jesus was a historical person. But Jesus being a historical person doesn't get him remembered. You can do the interpretive test we talked about the second week, and you can go to the scriptures and you can see, well, okay, is it did Jesus actually claim to be God? Or is that something his followers made up years and years after? And you could even pass that test and say, yes, Jesus claimed to be God, but there's a lot of people that claim to be a lot of crazy things. That alone does not get you a place in the historical record. You can do that third question, that third test. Did Jesus really die in that instrument of Roman torture and death? And you can say, yeah, there is no way he survived that. What we looked at medically and historically last week. But that obviously does not get you in the historical record. In fact, Jesus Christ may be the only person we know of by name who is crucified. Because generally that sort of torture was reserved for the slave class, for foreigners, for the worst and most despised criminals. So those three questions, apart from the question we're asking today, those three questions mean the answer, even in affirmative to those three questions, means very little. Only this, uh, I, well, before I even get there, the, there, there, you could conclude, you could get all those three questions right, and you can conclude with German historian Gerd Ludemann, who, who also happens to be an atheist, but what he said about Jesus, he said that Jesus' death, and this is the quote, Jesus' death as a consequence of crucifixion is indisputable. And he made, it was making that statement as a historian. But it's only this last question that gets to the meaning and significance of who was this person, Jesus. The Apostle Paul explains the significance in one of his letters he wrote to the Corinthian churches. 
He actually, at the beginning of this chapter, in chapter 15, he says, I delivered to you. I passed on, I delivered faithfully to you what I also received, which was of first importance. We've looked at this passage before where he says, I pass on to you what I received as of to first importance, that Christ Jesus died according to our sin, or died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he raised again from the dead according to the scriptures. And he, he takes that whole chapter then to speak of the people Jesus revealed himself to, and that there were some in Corinth that were saying, well, it really doesn't matter if we believe that Jesus really, literally, bodily rose from the dead. And Paul takes that entire chapter, and this is what he concludes. This is what he argues for. It matters. He said, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Another translation would say meaningless. Your faith is vain. He says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. He's saying, we're basically slandering God if we are making a claim that's untrue about Jesus' resurrection from the dead. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And just the recap, he says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, our faith is meaningless, our preaching is meaningless, the, uh, the apostles and those who first proclaimed the resurrection are liars, there's no hope of redemption, there's no hope of forgiveness, those who died are already lost forever, and we're throwing our lives away. So yes, this is an important question. We were at the wedding yesterday, and uh, Gabe did something I thought was just really touching, really moving. At the end of, uh, at the, end of the reception, you know, they, they thanked everyone who, who was there. They thanked their parents, and they thanked their, you know, wedding party, and, and they thanked, the, 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 you know, the people who put on the reception, and uh, they thanked everyone who had a part to, and participant in the, in the service. And, and then they thanked the guests who were there. They said, thank you for coming. And then Gabe said, we want to also show our appreciation for those among us who are no longer here with us. That, that have poured into our lives, that, that were examples to us, but are no longer living among us but they have received what they have hoped for. And then Gabe actually preached very shortly at his wedding toast, the resurrection, to say they have a hope that lasts beyond the grave. They had a hope that they're experiencing now, which means they are still alive here, and we recognize them. Doesn't matter that Christ raised from the dead, Yes, I was, we had some friends over the other day, and they were talking about nihilism. This idea that life has no meaning, life has no purpose, life has no anything that it's moving toward, life has no hope. And then one of the people said, I just try not to think about that. Well, resurrection is the answer to nihilism. Resurrection is the declaration that your life matters, that life matters, that there's hope, that there's purpose, and that there's meaning. I was once in a room of university students. I, I, I've shared this story here before, but I was asked to go to a course at University of Ottawa. I think it was an introduction to psychology course. I don't actually remember what in the world the course was, but the professor was teaching about, he took a, a semester to teach about uh, the scientific method and what it can discern and what it can't discern. And they invited me, actually I asked if I could come to talk about that Dig and Delve Apologetics Conference, and, and their professor was like, oh, not only can you come, we'd like you to be part of a classroom discussion on the relationship between faith and reason. And I was like, oh, okay, I didn't realize I was getting into that. So I walk into a class, there's 50, 60 university students, 
and we have this whole discussion about faith and reason. And, um, you know, we're talking about presuppositions and great discussion, wonderful discussion. And without 15 minutes left before I have to leave, I actually just prayed. I said, God, give me an opportunity to share my faith. Because I was talking, you know, in generalizations and academic terms. So I, I actually pray, God, give me an opportunity to share my faith. Just then, a student turns to me, and this is a student who at the beginning of the class was pretty hostile to me, or at least that's how I felt. And he turns and he says, you, I want to know why you believe in Christ. And I was like, oh, great. This is wonderful. This is what I was praying for. And so because I knew that they had been studying the scientific method, I said, you guys have studied Karl Popper, and you guys have studied about uh, his, what he's contributed to the scientific method, uh, the element of falsification. And, and what that means is it's, it's basically hard to prove something's true. What you do is you set up your hypothesis so that your experiment will prove that it's false. And they said, yeah, they're tracking with me because they'd been studying that. And I said, okay, at the heart of Christianity is the greatest falsifiable claim that has ever been made. And part of the reason I'm a Christian is because that greatest falsifiable claim that ever has been made, Jesus passed it. That greatest falsifiable claim that has ever been made, I sometimes boil down to Jesus' teaching to this. I am God, kill me, and I'll prove it. There's no scientist who's going to say, I'm going to, my, my falsifiable claim is that if you kill me, I will rise from the dead. Right? Uh, that's, that's, not a, that's not an experiment I, for example, would want to set up. You know, let me, let me actually put my entire, I mean, sometimes you, you, you know, Paul says in Romans, for a good man, someone might die, but God, you know, this is kind of that logic. I can imagine a scientist creating an experiment and putting his career on the line at, for the result of the experiment. I can't imagine anyone throwing out a hypothesis like that and putting their own life on the line. I'm God, kill me, and I'll prove it. And I said, I'm a Christian today because I truly believe in all my heart that the most reasonable understanding of history is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And in rising from the dead, he demonstrated, he proved that at least that, his claim, that one claim he made, held up. So you might say, okay, well, surely that's an astounding claim that Christ rose from the dead, and astounding claims demand insurmountable evidence. And, and yeah, I'll, I'll tell you this right now. Here's a disclaimer. I cannot prove anything to you today. I, I can't prove without a shadow of doubt. If you're, if you're willing to not believe, it, there's nothing I can do to open up the eyes of your heart. I actually believe that God grants faith. What I do hope is to show you why I believe it's at least reasonable and rational to believe that this Jewish itinerant preacher rose from the dead and was who he said he was. I, and I pray that as I do this, the Holy Spirit might be melting some of your defenses. He might be starting to chip away at those walls. You might say, okay, well, you know what, I, I will... I'm interested now. I'm going to go back and look at some of this, and I pray that the Lord will open up the eyes of your heart, and I pray not only will you hear an argument, I pray that you will see the glory of Jesus Christ. And that's my prayer today. And by the end of the service, I believe that some of us who are willing to see will actually see the glory of Jesus Christ shining in us today. Because he is not only, when we say he's alive, we don't only mean that he raised from the dead 2,000 years ago. When we say Jesus is alive, we say he is still alive and his glory still shines. So, when we think of the idea that Jesus raised from the dead, most people point to three facts or three strands of evidence. I actually don't generally. But generally speaking, if you read books on apologetics and did Jesus rise from the dead, they'll point you to three pieces of evidence. These are not the ones I normally use. But they'll point to the empty tomb. They'll point to the fact that Jesus' bones have never been found. They'll point to the fact that we know, we have, we have, we have shrines and temples set up for Buddha's resting places and, 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 uh, and, 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 and uh, Muhammad's resting places. We have these 
We, generally, their followers marked the places of their death and celebrated their lives by, by venerating the places of their death. We have nothing like that for Jesus Christ, and the record is that the tomb was empty. Another one is sometimes some people get really excited about this Shroud of Turin. I don't even know what I think about it, but some of you guys might be really interested in it. And you can look at it, and you can weigh it. I, the, some people say there's something there. It's an interesting thing. That's another piece. And a third piece is that we have early claims of post-resurrection appearances. What the Apostle Paul, you know, it's often said that from the time where Jesus was crucified to the times where people are writing about his life, there's decades and decades and decades between. But what we actually have in that 1 Corinthians 15 passage is the Apostle Paul that passage itself was written maybe 10 to 15 years after the crucifixion was to have happened. But in that passage, Paul actually says, I am I'm relating to you what I received from others. And then he goes on and names the people who saw Jesus after he raised from the dead. And then at one point he says, many of them are still alive, insinuating you can ask them yourselves if you want. Some scholars place that creedal formula of Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, he was buried and he rose again. There are some scholars, even critical scholars, that believe that was a Christological formula, like a creed, that was already used years, if not months, after Jesus was crucified. Yet these are not the three pieces that I point you to. Because, to be honest, when we study as human beings, when we study history, our, I know some of you guys, your eyes glaze over, right? You're like, oh, because there's thousands of years separating us and the empty tomb. There's thousands of years separating us and these resurrection appearances. So I generally do something, and this may be a rhetorical device, so forgive me. I generally say, I will, I will show you why I believe in the resurrection giving, using two pieces, actually three pieces of evidence that are here in this room. Okay? This is the way I explain it. Three pieces of evidence that are in this room. The first piece of evidence is the Bible itself. Now, you can look around. You can see the Bible's in the pews around you. And generally, the way that this is presented is not a good way to present it. Already, when I say the Bible, the first piece of evidence, you're like, well, that's a circular claim. The Bible's testifying that Jesus rose and we believe in the Bible because Jesus rose. That's not how I'm saying to think about the Bible. I want you to think about the Bible not as this book that's in your hand that's nicely bound that came from a Christian publishing company and has a nice leather spine on it or whatever you have, but I want you to think about the Bible for what it is. The Bible is a book, and just take the New Testament. The New Testament is a, it's not a book. It's a compilation of letters. It's a compilation of letters written by people in history to other people in history. It's a compilation of letters written by those who are called apostles to the churches that they built and established and planted. And these letters, if you just take them at that, take them as letters, as historical artifacts, these letters are significant because they're not just like love letters and they're not just like, you know, email that we send out. They are letters within which they testify that they are writing eyewitnesses' account to what they have seen regarding Christ. For example, in, in a letter we call 2 Peter, Peter just said, it's the second letter I wrote. He writes this. He writes, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. The Apostle John, who wrote five letters of the New Testament, claims in his letter first, that we call 1 John that we saw him, we heard him with our ears, we saw him with our eyes, our hands have handled him concerning the word of life who became flesh and dwelt among us and whom we know as Jesus. Luke, the writer of the third gospel, was, he, he, he explains I, he was not an eyewitness but he states in the introduction to his gospel that he knew the eyewitnesses and he looked carefully into them making investigation so that he could write for us and that we could know 
with certainty regarding the things that we have been taught. That's his words. The apostles were not interested in writing fiction. Now you might think, and I've heard this before, well, these are uneducated ancient men. You might think, well, they're easy to be misled. You might think that they were mistaken and they were just dunces and they lived in this magical world of fairies and demigods. Listen, humanity does not change that much. You know today how ridiculous the claim would be if we said a person who was tortured and killed in the manner Jesus was, you know today how ridiculous it would be to say, I saw him and he was alive. It's not like the ancient people were that different in going, oh yeah, we just expect that to happen all the time. In fact, their own accounts say, we were slow to believe. Their own accounts were embarrassing for their lack of faith. When they're writing their eyewitness testimonies, they're not writing this in such a way that puts them on a pedestal and makes them look good and say, yeah, we knew all along what was going on. No, in fact, in their own accounts, they run away scared. Peter denies Jesus three times. Thomas says, I will not believe him at all because I know that people do not rise from the dead. You are going to have to show me And Jesus appears to him and he says, my Lord and my God. And then John, the eyewitness to this, says, blessed are the ones who have seen and believed, but blessed are the ones who have not seen and yet still have believed. And he says, I'm writing these things to you as an eyewitness that you may believe in the name of Jesus, the Son of God, and that by believing you would have life in his name. Somebody might tell me, well, it's irrational. No one rises from the dead, and maybe the whole thing is a work of fiction. Maybe they are just really good fiction writers. How many of you guys have read J.R.L. Tolkien? Lord of the Rings. One of the, I mean, if you're a fan, boy, fan, girl, you're like, yeah. It's one of the highly, you know, highest regarded works of English literature. And the reason why we say J.R.L. Tolkien is a genius is because he's been able to create this world, right? Middle Earth. He gave it languages. He gave it culture. He gave it artifacts. I mean, not outside of the book, but artifacts within the book. He created this world, right? Some of the best film directors, uh, James Cameron or George Lucas, you know, you, you, you admire them because they're able to create these amazing, immaculate, sustainable worlds. In fact, this whole entire phenomena of fan fiction, right, that your generation does, goes on the internet. You get into this world that this creator has created, and then you make your own stories up because these worlds are so intricate. And we say these guys are literary geniuses, but actually they had an easier task to do because Tolkien, when he created his world, he had to make it rational to seem like a world that could be inhabited, but he did not have to match Middle Earth up to any point in time in our real history. There's no archaeologist thousands of years later looking for Middle Earth to confirm and to verify is Middle Earth really historically accurate. And we say Tolkien was a genius for doing that. And then somebody comes along and says, oh, but the writers of the New Testament, they just did this. At once, these uneducated rubes who were easily confused, at the other time, if they were to have made this up, this would have been Lord of the Rings multiplied. I'll teach you a word, verisimilitude. You hear that word? Verisimilitude. Verisimilitude is the word that describes veritas, truth, right? Similitude, similar to, right? Truth, similar to, right? Verisimilitude. But verisimilitude is when you're reading like a historical account of something, how much does that account match up to what is actually true? And the reason why we speak of verisimilitude in, in, in connection to the Gospels is that those who have researched the Gospels, they see there is such a high level of verisimilitude to the point where, you know, archaeologists at some points in history have just said, we'll follow the Bible and we'll find stuff. 
And when they do say, well, Luke was wrong. There's, a, there's an account of Luke using some terms for Roman officers, and the historian said, well, Luke just made these terms up. Well, basically, whenever those sorts of things have happened in history with the Bible, all you have to do is wait. You wait. One thing that just happened recently was people at one point were skeptical about whether Pontius Pilate was truly the historical figure the Bible paints him to be. Because there's no record. There was no record that we had in the historical record of Pontius Pilate. But just in the last 10 years, they found an inscription, like it, carved in stone, I believe, in Caesarea, in Herod's palace. And they said this arch is dedicated to Pontius Pilate, the precursor of Judea. It's set in stone. That's what we're talking about when we're speaking of bare similitude. These authors of Scripture were not just making these things up. They were reporting what they were seeing. And then they're recording even details. They match up with what we have found. Turn that around in your mind. Even if you're a skeptic. You came here this morning. Turn that around in your mind. Go home and pick up your Bible. I challenge you. Begin reading the New Testament. Begin reading the Gospels. Begin reading Luke and Acts. And just like you would with Tolkien, get lost in that world, I challenge you to do that with the New Testament. Get lost in the world. When I was in China, when I lived in China, here's another verisimilitude story. When I lived in China, one of the girls that was in our English class, she decided she had been skeptic. She had been trained to be atheist her whole life. And she said, well, she's reading through the Old Testament. And one day she came into the office with the English teachers and she told us that she had become a Christian. And we were blown away. We said, why? She said, I, I became a Christian because I realized the Bible was true. And I said, why did you how did you realize the Bible was true? And she said, I was reading the story of Joseph and something bothered me. We thought it was going to be something spiritual, like, wow, that message of forgiveness in the story of Joseph. She said, no, what bothered me in the story of Joseph was that Joseph is in prison, right? And he, he's found that he can interpret dreams. And he's going to be brought into before Pharaoh. And I had never noticed this in my Bible before, but this is something she noticed. She said, it says when they brought him out of prison, before they met with the Pharaoh, they shaved him. And she said that really bothered her. Why would the Bible, which she thought was just this made-up writing, why would it record such a strange detail of he's in prison and they shaved him? And she knew nothing of Egyptian culture. So she said, I went to the library at People's University of China. I got this encyclopedia of Egyptian culture and history. And that's where she realized that, yes, in order to approach Pharaoh, you would shave your, your head, your eyebrows. You'd be completely shaven. And it sounds weird. That, that might not would have been what it took to, to you know, bring me to faith. But for her, it was its mark of verisimilitude. It was this mark of, man, why would you make up details like that? And then how, if you were making up the details, could they be accurate? So go home, I challenge you. Challenge you to, to jump, into, jump into, if you don't have a Bible, come and see me afterward, I'll give you one. And begin reading. Start seeing the history unfold before you. The second piece of evidence <laughs> that's here today that you can look around and see is the church. You might say, what? What do you mean? What are you talking about? And I, I, here I want to remind you that the Bible is not, the, the Bible was not, maybe today sometimes it is, and that's not that great, but the Bible was not at its beginning a book publishing product. Like it wasn't a book publishing project. It was like these guys going around going, hey, we're going to make Lifeway Christian bookstores and sell our Bibles. That's not what it was about. Most of the New Testament, as I said, was written as letters from the apostles to communities of Christians that had been formed throughout the Roman Empire. And so here's this question, where did these people come from? These people in Corinth and in Philippi and in Thessalonians and in Ephesians and in Rome. Where did they come from? Suddenly in the Bible, what you have, early testimony, early records, early sources of writing letters to Christian communities. But here's the amazing thing. Those communities are already there. 
in the first century throughout the Roman Empire, those communities are already spread across the Mediterranean Sea, even down into Africa. Early, I'll show you this picture. Uh, a couple years ago, there's this church in Caesarea. The church, I believe, was, was built in the third or fourth century. And this church in Caesarea claims to be uh, Peter's house. But it's not Peter's house, obviously. It's not Peter's house because it was built in the third or fourth century. But they started digging under this church. And this is what they found. Underneath Peter's house church, they found a first century house. Not of a king, not of somebody well off, uh, somewhat well off. It wasn't a small house. But they found the house of a common laborer under this amazing church that had been built. What was even more amazing was they found, you see this, um, I think I can do this. Oh, yeah, you see this octagonal, octa I can't say that word. It's an octagon, that one. In the center of their house, it's a large room. It could seat about probably 15 to 20 people. What they found on the walls of this, they found chips of uh, ceramic. They found that these walls had been reupholstered or uh, restructured so that you could put more people in the room. They found some scraps of writing on these ceramic walls, test giving indication not only that it was used for Christian purposes, but even Peter's name they found on these. Now, we don't know when that writing was, but here we have what many believe to be Peter's house. Peter's house, who the Bible tells us that Jesus actually spent time and slept in. Peter's house that at some point, probably in the first century, was already being used as a place of worship. Here's the thing. It, it doesn't take... Some, some of you have read Da Vinci Code, where you're like... Oh, no. I mean, I had my neighbor tell me this not too long ago. Christianity was an invention in the third century by, by uh, what's that dude's name? Constantine, that's it. Uh, Christianity was just this invention in the third century by Constantine. They just made up, they just applied deity to him in the third century. There's no possible way. We have literally evidences of churches worshiping Jesus as God in the first century. We have letters written to those churches worshiping Jesus as God in the first century. How does this happen? There had to have been, I love the historian Rodney Stark talks about, he talks about there had to be a launch pad. In order for a rocket to go up into space, you have to have a firm foundation. There has to be a rock underneath it from which the rocket can blast off from and, 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 and go into the heavens. And he says, you, if, if there is no resurrection, you have not a rock under the rocket of the church. You have a hole under the rocket of the church. Something had to have been that rock. And he says, I can think of no other explanation than that Christ rose from the dead. That they, they saw something, they believed in something, and they propagated it throughout, and they went to their death on account of that fact of Christ's resurrection. Without the resurrection, there's a hole in history that can be filled with no other explanation. But I said there's a third fact, third piece of evidence, and uh, this one I would say, look around. Your Christian friend. I, there's not just a hole of history that the resurrection fills. There's a hole in us that the resurrection fills. The resurrection takes fearless fishermen and turns them into fearless fanatics. The resurrection takes persecuting Pharisees and turns them into love-preaching missionaries. The resurrection takes people with no hope, turns them into hopeful people. An encounter, like I said before, an encounter with the risen Lord still transforms people. Talk to your Christian friend. Ask them, how has Jesus changed their life? 
I, I, there's that song, sometimes, I'm, sometimes I'm, I've, I have in my life kind of made fun of it because I, I don't know if it was, I don't know, because we're all jerks and we're all critical all the time. But you know that song, I serve a risen Savior, he's in the world today. That one, it's an old hymn, you may not know it. But the uh, chorus goes, he lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. And at times when I was young and stupid, you know, we're also critical, and we make fun. You know, I, I was like this apologist going, oh, you know, I, I know Jesus lives not just because he lives in my heart. I know Jesus lives because history testifies it. I know that Jesus lives because the scriptures testify it. And for some of you, that is what you need to hear. You need to wrestle with the reasonableness of the faith. You know, I, I need to remind myself of this. Some people are wired differently. And for some of you, what you, what all of you, probably what you need to see is you need to see lives transformed. You need to see not only, okay, did he raise from the dead, but what is he still now doing? So look deeply into your Christian friends. Hear the stories of God's amazing work in their life because he didn't just raise from the cross. He lives. We've got a sister today that this is going to be an exciting day. Uh... Our sister, Colleen Henderson, you can sit down there for a second. I'll introduce you so you don't have to just stand up here. But um, Colleen Henderson, uh, man, you've been in this church for a long time, longer than I have. 17 years? I remember, I don't know, I don't want to steal your thunder. You told me the story of the first time you came here, you didn't want to come. Your, your husband dragged you here. And you were ready to leave. You walked halfway in and were ready to leave. And then Richard, Lim, and Carol grabbed your arm <laughs> and said, welcome. And they wouldn't let you go. And I think 17 years, they're still not letting you go. And um, Colleen, uh, this is an amazing story of God's work in her life. She called me about a month ago. She said, Pastor Dan, I need to talk to you. And uh, I didn't know what she was going to tell me. I thought I was in trouble at first. Um, <laughs> and I went uh, to see Colleen, and she told me she wanted to be baptized. And now Colleen, she, she grew up in the church. She, she grew up, she's an amazing story. I don't know how much of that she's going to tell, but she grew up in India. She was baptized as an infant as part of their Christian community. Um, but we, at our church, we, we, we love to give people the opportunity to be baptized as believers, where they can give a testimony, testify the faith of what she's doing in her life. And Colleen said, I want to do that. I want to testify. I want to speak publicly of what Christ has done in our life. And I said, are you sure? And she said, yeah. And I said, that's awesome. Let's do it. And uh, Colleen, I know you've got some things on your heart you want to share with us. So why don't you come up? I think you can use this one. Okay, okay. Oh, I am so blessed and so happy to stand before you on this Easter day and affirm my faith. It's, it's a long story. <laughs> I have to say that I have had no um, road to Damascus experience. I have no uplifting words to tell you. But I would like to know, you to know, why I have come here to subject myself, I'd like to say. <laughs> <laughs> to tell you why I love God and want you to know. So, what shall I do? 
I think, Pastor, maybe I will just uh, tell you a little bit about my life and uh, the experiences that made me come here today. Uh, and I'm sure there are experiences that you have all been visited in, in your lives in our societies today. I was born 83 years ago, a child of the British Raj, born to privilege, but I was lucky to be born into a Christian family. Um, my father was English and my mother is an Anglo-Indian and they belonged to the, what was called in that society, the Church of England, which was Anglican. So I was raised church on Sunday, Sunday school. I was baptized when I was an infant. And we lived a very sheltered life. We lived in an English enclave and didn't have much to do with this great sea of non-believers, Hindus and Muslims. That's sad. It's very sad. I had my first experience of the power of God, just like this, when I was five years old. You see, in India, during the rains, the furniture gets swollen, and I had to get dressed for school, and this drawer wouldn't open, and I couldn't get out any clothes. And I struggled and struggled and struggled. So eventually, I kneeled down, put my arms together, and said, Dear God, please, I've got to go to school, and I'm going to be late, so please open this drawer for me. Well, our, sir, our, our maidservant, who was a Hindu lady, she was very, very amused, so she called my grandmother and said, Look, Mensa, you see Baba's praying to God to open this drawer. And just then, the drawer opened. It popped <laughs> open. And my grandmother said, see? <laughs> well, it wasn't so simple. I thought I was in a lot of trouble. Because I had been taught that you don't bother God about frivolous things. Because, it, you know, God's too busy about <laughs> big important things. He doesn't want to know about your Christmas list of <laughs> gifts or the hair ribbons that I would like my mother to buy for me. So I really thought I was, I was in trouble. But nobody said anything. So I think at that point in time, I became a private Christian, a silent Christian. Well, life went on. When I was 13 years old, I presented myself for confirmation. This is in the, in the Anglican tradition, when you are supposed to have, uh, be an adult and make decisions for yourself. And uh, I presented myself at the at the parish office, and the minister looked up from his desk and said, Call, come back again next year. Well, I was really upset, <laughs> because I would have liked to have been confirmed with all the rest of my family, my, uh, my cohorts, and uh, attend the confirmation classes every Saturday morning, which was a lot of fun. Well, that didn't happen. So I went, got confirmed the next year. And I think that was God's plan. Because at that time, I met a girl whose name was also Colleen. And we have been fast friends for all our lives. Uh, we were, you know, she went off, married a Scotsman, and is now a minister in the, in the Church of Scotland. And I came to Canada. Well... We belonged to the Anglican Church. Went to church every Sunday. Got involved in usual church things. But I wasn't happy. I realized that I wasn't happy in a comfortable pew. And I left that church for 20 years and didn't have any corporate 
religious affiliations. <laughs> but I think that was God's plan also. Because in those 20 years, I did a lot of things that improved our society. I sat on NGO boards. I was, I was uh, a director of the Council on Aging. I was chair of the Commonwealth Society, Center 507. Um, no, no, Howard, I'm not going to tell them everything. <laughs> <laughs> but during that time, I also was responsible for negotiating with the ministry that we'd have one floor of new building which I helped to build as a Chinese old age residence. So there are God's another sign of God's work. And then I came to OCBC. Oh, Pastor has already told you that story, <laughs> but uh, Richard did. Richard is my godfather. <laughs> <laughs> so here I am, folk, ready to, to go on to whatever God has planned for me. And I think... Sure. Yeah. Well, I live in a condominium. And I am the chair of the Condominium Society, and for the past three years, I've had a very close relationship with all the owners, most of, whom, most of whom are elderly. And I see a lot of sadness. I see a lot of loneliness. Uh, I see a lot of what I was feeling before I came to OCVC, a church that is so caring and so loving. So I think that is my mission. That's where I'm going to put my energies for whatever time God gives me. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Colleen, you've come this far, and I'm not going to let it, you off easy a little bit, okay? I'm not going to tell you you have to wait till next year, but <laughs> <laughs> but uh, just something that you shared with me on Wednesday that really was powerful yeah. was I won't use the word you use, but you said basically you've been a pri you're a very private person you've been very private in your faith, right? I'll tell you my story. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> well, not long ago. I was invited to a very nice dinner, about 12, 13 people around there. And the meal was served, and as always, I put out my hands to take the glass of the people beside me, and I realized, oh, nobody's done it. I quickly put my hands down, and it bothered me. I didn't even bend my own head and say thanks. That night, I said to myself, Colleen, you're a hypocrite. <laughs> you're like Peter. You're, reject you're rejecting God. And I, it, I did. I did. The very next day, I was at a meeting, and uh, somebody at the end of the meeting said, well, can we meet next Sunday? And I said, no, meeting is confirmed. Meeting is adjourned. We went, my colleagues, I heard one whisper to the other, what's, what's with Colleen? And I said to myself, oh, because Colleen is denying her religion. Colleen is denying Christ. And that's when I decided I had to do this. And the words you used was, you want to be in public. It's been private to you for many years. And this is a, and this baptism, what the reason why we do baptism. Baptism is a, a public identification with Christ. It's when we, when we go under the water, it, it actually signifies our union with Christ's death as we go under the water and the union with him in his new life, in his resurrection life as we come 
out of the water. In many places around the world, just, just saying a prayer, saying I'm a Christian, well, it's all fine and good. But it's when you're baptized that you, you become a publicly identified with him, with his life and with his death. Through your baptism, that's when you may be persecuted. That's when you may be kicked out of your family. That's, that's when the culture around you sees your union with Christ. And, and so this is a huge step for Colleen. As, as she shared with me, this is, she wishes to be a public Christian in her condominium and in, in, in her life, not just Sunday morning. And so that is why I'm so privileged to be a part of this with you, Colleen. And that's my prayer for you, as, as you go, not only as we do this today, but as you go out from here. And so, Colleen, do you admit before God that you are a sinner and that you are willing to repent? I do. <laughs> and do you believe that the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross pays the penalty of your sin, forgives you, and redeems you from the slavery of sin. And consequently, do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, through whom your sins are totally forgiven by God? Absolutely. Are you willing to turn to God and ask his child to love him with all your heart, with all your soul and all your strength, with all your mind, and by God's Spirit to pursue, to know, and to follow his will? I will. And are you willing to submit to Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life, to be his disciple and learn to be like him in Christian character as well as in Christian service. Let's pray for Colleen. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your workmanship that you've been pleased to work into Colleen's life. Your word says that before the foundation of the earth, you have ordained good works that we might walk in them. And we thank you so much that we, we are so privileged to be a part of this day as we stand with our sister Colleen, as we receive her testimony and bear witness to what you have done in her life and rejoice along with you that our sister is taking this step of faith and publicly identifying herself with your son. May you fill her with your, with your spirit. May forgiving all of her sins and may you empower her to the work that she herself has feel that you have called her to do and to accomplish through her. Lord, from this day forward, will you, will you give her that mission? Lord, and I pray that you actually use her in an amazing way, even in her condominium where she lives, the neighborhood she lives, and through her network of friends, associates, and relatives, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Oh, we can take your glasses off here if you want. Do you want? All right, watch out. It's a little deeper than it looks. You think there's two steps over here? Yeah. I'll take your glasses. Watch out. There's two steps. And you can sit on that stick right there. There you go. That's easy. Colleen Henderson, by virtue of your confession of Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, in front of God and these witnesses, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, buried with him in likeness of his death, and raised again in newness of life. Amen. <laughs> Here are your glasses again. I don't mind giving what you can give me a hug. <laughs> <laughs> God bless.
That is awesome. That's what I'm talking about when I'm speaking about the glory of Christ, that he not only raised from the dead 2,000 years ago, but that he actually lives to transform lives now. And I don't normally do this, but the only way I know how to close this part of our service, we're going to sing in a second. But I do want to speak directly to you today. If you are here today and you do not yet know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I would pray to you, I would pray that, and I would appeal to you today. I, I don't know what your life has been. Some of us walk in rebellion, and we experience the fruit and the consequences of the life that we've lived in, and we come to Christ desperate. Others of us possibly face loneliness or that feeling in your chest that there's got to be something more than this, that there's something missing in my life, and I don't know what it is. Others have, have held their hand up against God, saying, I want nothing to do with you. And God kind of chases us down, kicking and screaming. And I don't know who you are. But today, I want you to know, if you were to turn from your life and turn to Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, He will forgive you of your sins and bring you into His family. If you're here today and that's you, I want to pray for you right now and I want you to come and speak to me after the service. Some of you also, you may be like Colleen. You may have been a private Christian your whole life. And now you've, you, you realize, that I, I need this. I need to publicly identify with my Savior. If you haven't been baptized, come and talk to me after the service. I'd love to prepare you for baptism as a believer. There may be others of you that just right now, this Easter Sunday, you're saying, I have been straying. I have been walking away from Christ. I have not made him the center of my life, and I need to repent of that, and I need to return. And I, in a moment, I'm going to pray for you. You know, the, the great thing about God is as we're walking away from him, he's always right behind us, and we turn around, and he's right there, ready to forgive if that's you today, I'm going to pray for you. This can be a day of renewal. It can be a day of regeneration. It can be a, a day of resurrection. That Christ may raise up your faith, uniting yourself to him. That's my plea to you. Let's take a moment of prayer. I'm going to call up the worship team. We'll take a moment of prayer. Go before the Lord with me. Heavenly Father, I, I pray that by your spirit you'll be convicting hearts. You'll be touching our lives right now. I pray for those who are in here today that right now for the first time are saying yes to Jesus, saying yes, I need you, saying yes, I turn from my life. Yes, I need you. I need your new life in me. Please forgive me of my sins and make me new. I pray for anyone in here this morning who is calling out that right now, even as I'm praying, they are praying, I need you, Jesus. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will flood their life and you'll pour your spirit into them, that you will raise them from the dead. I pray, Lord Jesus, for those who are in here who are saying, yes, I I have been living a private Christian life and I now today I see that Spirit, you're calling me to live publicly. And I pray for any who are in here seeking baptism, Lord, that you will give them strength and confirmation. And I pray that they'll come and talk to me after service. And I pray for all of us in here, Lord Jesus, because we all, like sheep, go astray. That daily, Lord, we walk in our own way, but you have called us to be walking in the Spirit, walking in renewal, walking in repentance, walking in confession of sin, coming before you, God. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that as we turn back to you, Lord, we will find grace and forgiveness that satisfies 
and that cleanses. And I pray for renewal this Easter, Lord Jesus. I pray for resurrection. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Again, if you're here today, if that was any of you, come and talk to me after service. I'd love to chat with you about next steps with Christ. We are